time we go out, we'll start to see some snow, too, so we can blame them for that, too. So it's good to see all of you this morning. I want to ask if you've ever noticed how much of life is full of warnings and cautions. As a matter of fact, you won't be able to drive from church to home today without seeing something that's either a direct warning or some sort of caution, or at the very least, a law or a limit with an implied warning. Like, for example, speed limits, right? They're an implied warning that if you drive over that limit, you can be ticketed, you can get yourself hurt, even killed, uh, hurt someone else. That's why we have limits. There are all kinds of warnings in life. Most products now, thank you lawyers, have labels warning about improper use. I found a great list of these warnings and believe it or not, all of these are real. For example, the wheelbarrow that says not intended for highway use. I don't know, when I saw that I thought, I can see Bo Thorpe with that going, pushing a little kid down the highway on that thing. <laughs> then there's this stroller said, remove child before folding. This one's kind of disgusting. It's a thermometer that warns, once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. Really? Wow. How about this one? This product not intended for use as a dental drill. <clears throat> Ouch. Or this one, do not iron while wearing shirt. Handy safety tip, isn't it? For those of you trying to save time getting ready in the morning, there's the hair dryer with the warning, do not use while sleeping. So we can laugh about these things and we can think who would be foolish enough to ever need such a warning. But apparently someone did something goofy enough or some lawyer thinks somebody is or will be foolish enough or should we say stupid enough to think about really ironing a shirt while they're wearing it or folding their kid into the stroller. Then, of course, we often hear about warnings that go unheeded. <clears throat> and sometimes when these warnings are unheeded, there are very serious consequences of these things. And those aren't really very funny. For example, how often have we heard the clear warning, don't drink and drive? Yet, <clears throat> how often do you hear or read of a drunk driver who causes an accident that hurts someone or kill someone. Just this week, if you saw the news, a jury convicted the guy who hit and killed that ORU soccer player last year who was stopped at a light at 71st in Yale and the drunk driver hit him going 75 miles an hour. How often do we hear about the dangers of illegal drugs and then hear about someone who died of an overdose or became addicted and ruined their life as a result? Not paying attention to warnings or even to admonitions on how to live can have very serious and even deadly consequences. Sometimes we even witness or experience the consequences of a behavior up close and personally and follow in that path anyway with the same or worse consequences following. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's this true story from several years ago and this is really appropriate considering the cold weather out here, but this, there was a man named David Manley and he ignored Coast Guard warnings and he went out on the icy surface of Saginaw Bay up in Michigan with his pickup truck one chilly morning and predictably 
the vehicle broke through the ice, but the 41-year-old managed to avert tragedy and escape the sinking truck. He reached the shore, shore wet and cold, but he was alive. Well, despite this experience, despite the warnings, despite a day of sunshine and warm temperatures in the 60s, David returned to Saginaw Bay late the following night. And this time he was driving an ATV. It was accompanied by a friend. And well, surprise, not really. The ATV also plunged through the ice. His companion survived, but David had used up his luck. His body was recovered by the Coast Guard. Now think about this. With the cold we have now, let this be a warning too. That creek or that pond that you may pass every day and you think, hey, wouldn't it be cool to walk across that? It probably hasn't been cold enough long enough to support your weight. So let me give a warning for that. Cautions and warnings can be our friends. They exist to keep us well. Sometimes they exist to keep us alive. The same is true of our life in Christ. Though it's true that we trust only and completely in the grace of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for our eternal destiny, we Christians often do stupid things to mess up our lives on earth. And sometimes, like this guy David Manley, despite warnings, we do it repeatedly and we suffer the consequences. We can all think of things that we, we might have done or not done or things we've seen others do or not do, things that had at least some short-term negative consequences or even longer-term life-altering consequences. Now, the Word of God is first and foremost a book that details God's eternal plans for our salvation and reveals to us His character. But the Word of God is also a book that's full of cautions and warnings. You can't read it and not see them. You see, God doesn't just tell us in this book how we can be saved, but he tells us how we can live godly lives for him. And in doing that, we can escape the consequences of what we'd otherwise have to classify as foolish or even stupid behavior. While I believe that this fallen world that we live in, this sinful world just about guarantees that we will have some measure of trouble, illness, or hardship in our lives, I also believe that by walking wholeheartedly with Jesus, by devoting our lives to him, we can escape at least some of the things we'd otherwise have to deal with in this life. There's no guarantee of total bliss. I'm sorry. You can do everything right, you can heed every warning, and you're still going to have issues this side of eternity. But things do go better when we follow the Lord. This morning we're going to look at six things, and this is by no mean an exhaustive list because these kinds of cautions and warnings we see throughout the Word of God, but these are six of many things we can mention, and I call these the six stupid things Christians do to mess up their lives. The Word of God is clear that there are consequences for some of these stupid things. And if you think I'm being a little too harsh by calling these stupid things, that's actually a good translation for many of the passages that we're going to read, even when you don't see the word stupid. And some of the passages do have the word stupid in some translations. It's a good translation for some of that. Now, foolish is not an exact synonym for stupid, 
but it's close. Foolish, the dictionary definition says, resulting from or showing a lack of sense. We call common sense. Have you ever noticed that common sense isn't so common anymore? It says, ill-considered, unwise, a foolish action, a foolish speech, lacking forethought or caution. And then the dictionary gives this list of synonyms for foolish. Senseless, vacant, vapid, simple, witless, foolish, fatuous, silly, inane, stupid. Foolish implies a lack of common sense or good judgment. Now, folly is another word for stupidity or foolishness, and we see that word used quite often in Scripture, starting with Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21 through 23. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Now here, paths are just simply what we do, our conduct, the choices we make. But this proverb goes on to say, starting again with verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. A warning, right? Another version says, he'll be led astray by his own great folly. Now, the immediate context of this particular verse is adultery, which Scripture clearly labels foolishness, but also labels as sin. But I believe these things in these passages can apply to any kind of sin. The terrible consequences of sin, outlined in several verses before the passage we just read, should be enough to motivate a person to avoid it. But in this passage, we see an even higher motivation to avoid sin. Well, first of all, God sees. He sees our hearts. He sees our actions. Whether anybody ever sees how stupid you are, how foolish you act sometimes, God sees. If that's not enough, we also see the warning that sin ensnares us. It traps us, just like a rope can tie us up. What's more, we can be led astray from God's standards by our own foolishness or folly. We read in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, the NIV says correction, is stupid. Cautions and warnings can be reproof or correction, and what this verse says is to hate them is stupid. That's pretty blunt, huh? We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. So here's a couple translations that actually use the word stupid. Now what Solomon wrote here in this passage in Ecclesiastes is that the wise person has a quality of heart and mind that will protect him from danger. That's what the part of the verse that says inclines to the right means. It's not necessarily referring to right or wrong, and certainly not to your politics, because if that's what he wanted to communicate, he might have written that the fool inclines to the wrong, rather than saying the left, if he was trying to show a contrast. So here the King James Version actually has a most literal translation. It says, the heart of the wise is at his right hand, God's right hand. The right hand, especially in the Old Testament, was a place of protection. We won't read these, but you might want to look at these verses later. Uh, Psalm 16, 8, 110, verse 5, and 121, verse 5. 
These verses show how the Old Testament viewed the right hand. Now the opposite of the wise person is the fool who lack sense, and he's clearly illustrating this by his behavior. The figure of speech walking along the road in this verse from Ecclesiastes indicates moral behavior. Then we read this in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, as believers, the operative phrase here should be at one time, right? In other words, it's the idea that you used to be this way before you came to Christ, and you shouldn't be this way anymore because now you are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 says, Be there very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And then it says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. King David said this to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Now Solomon understood that message because in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6, he wrote this, Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Of course, he's personifying wisdom as she here. It's obvious from Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's also clear that our primary source for this wisdom is the Word of God. And that brings me to the first stupid thing that Christians do to mess up their lives. Neglect the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man, of course that's not just men, that's all of us, keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The core theme verse of Bible Bowl. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now we might actually write or say something like that ourselves if we just understood and accepted how so many of these rules we sometimes resist from Scripture are there for our own well-being. They're there for our protection. But our tendency is to see rules and laws as somehow restrictive, holding us back from doing what we want to do or keeping us from having fun. The psalmist didn't see it that way. One commentary on this passage says, most of us chafe under rules, for we think they restrict us from doing what we want. At first glance, then, it may seem strange to hear the psalmist talk of rejoicing 
in following God's statues as much as in great riches. Imagine that. But God's laws were given to free us to be all he wants us to be. They restrict us from doing what might cripple us and what might keep us from being our best. God's guidelines help us follow his path and avoid paths that lead to destruction. Now God's word, learned, listened to, and obeyed can help keep us from doing stupid or foolish things. More than that, it also helps us to do good things, godly things. So for us to ignore his word, for us to leave it on the shelf, for us to not take the time to know it and to know it well only leads to foolishness or, keeping with this morning's theme, stupidity. Right? The word neglect in this passage means to mislay, to be oblivious of, from want of memory or attention. That's the key. We're not oblivious to the word because we can't get a high, our hands on a Bible. How many Bibles do you have at home, right? For each of us, it's very available. We don't pay adequate attention to it. We don't give it the place sometimes in our Christian lives that it deserves. I know a lot of us do, but some of us maybe don't. Of course, we can hear God's word without ever reading God's word for ourselves, just like we're doing this morning. This, passage, this sermon is full of scripture references, right? But Sunday morning preaching isn't enough. Sunday night teaching at basic isn't enough. Wednesday night house church or basic Bible study isn't enough by itself. We need to be in the word as individuals ourselves. We need to read it daily. We need to study. We need to meditate on the word of God. It's there for our protection and it's there to help us to know what to do in serving the Lord. We read in Matthew chapter 7 verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. That's the second part of neglecting the word, the stupid thing that Christians sometimes do. If we hear the word of God and if we know his word and then don't put it into practice, we're just as foolish as if we never heard or read the word at all. Anyone who builds houses will tell you that they need a firm and strong foundation. If you've ever had a house that didn't have one, you know the problems that it causes. But hearers of the word only and not doers, or neglecting to read the word at all, makes us foolish and has the potential to really mess up our lives. The word of God is the foundation for building our lives in Christ. And another key component in building our lives in Christ relates to the second stupid things that Christians do to mess up their lives, and that is forsake the fellowship. Often you'll, you'll hear journalists or economists talking about the leading economic indicators. Have you heard that on a news story sometime? These things are not the be-all and end-all of how the economy is doing. In other words, they don't tell the whole story but they do often give us a good idea and are often very close to the mark. Now, if I want to begin to get a clue to how someone's doing in their relationship with the Lord, if I begin to wonder how their walk with Christ is, one of the leading spiritual indicators is this. Are they in fellowship in church regularly? I mean a lot more often than they're not. I want to be clear up front that I don't want to be legalistic here, okay? 
I know there are legitimate reasons for not being in church. I'm sure this morning some people just really couldn't get out in the cold. And I, that's okay, right? There are reasons. We're not going to audit you. We're not going to keep track of that. Unfortunately, we're not a big church, so we know when you're not here. So I know there's all kinds of reasons that make it difficult or impossible for people to be in church every Sunday. But I also know that you can be far from Christ and still be a regular church attender. So I have to tell you, when I think back on Christians who end up doing stupid things to mess up their lives, I can very often think back and note that their church attendance, while maybe at one time had been pretty regular, has slipped into sporadic. And it was no longer a priority for them, clearly. When once you would have seen this person pretty much every Sunday and maybe every Wednesday night if you were in their small group or house church, <clears throat> now this person is here maybe once a month. And you see them less and less until finally they drift away from church. And I'll tell you this too. Once a person drifts away from church, it's almost inevitable that they will also drift away from the Lord. Elders, leaders at TCF, haven't we seen this time and time again? Now usually when challenged, these people might say something like, well, you know, I get a lot of time on my own with the Lord, and I fellowship with people over lunches and, and things like that. The implication is that they don't need church to keep them on track in their spiritual life. Let me say, I believe that approach is incredibly naive. It's virtually impossible to be a Christian in isolation. The Word of God doesn't teach us independence. It teaches us interdependence. We need each other. My brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's support. We need each other's admonishment and correction. We need each other's wisdom and perspective. Because by ourselves... We can be deceived. The Bible is full of one another phrases. I'm sure many of you, I say this jokingly, remember the sermon I did some years ago where I looked up the phrase one another and phrases like that and I found almost 40 of them in the New Testament alone. Over and over, the Bible talks about our responsibility to each other. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to accept one another. We're to care for one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to encourage and build up one another. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to serve one another. We're to love one another. Anybody see a pattern here? We cannot do those one another things apart from the fellowship. Would you agree with me that the early New Testament saints described in the book of Acts, especially early on, were for the most part walking closely with the Lord? I mean, we see that. We see evidence of it in the stories we see, right? The leading spiritual indicator here was Acts 2.42. They devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayer. Devoted here means to be earnest toward. That is to a thing to persevere, to be constantly diligent or in a place to attend assiduously all the exercises or to a person to adhere closely to, to attend, to give self continually. When we forsake the fellowship, when we give up meeting our, 
uh, meeting together, we open ourselves up to those stupid things that we can do to mess up our lives. That goes for all of us adults. You know what? It does. It goes for our youth. Don't miss basic. It's one of the things God uses to keep you from being stupid. That's a good thing. One reason we need each other and we need the Word of God is because of the third stupid thing that Christians do to mess up their lives, and that is underestimate the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now definitely, when we're vulnerable spiritually, but even when we're doing well in the Lord, in our walk with Christ, we underestimate, I believe, the pull, the influence that the things of the world have in our lives. After all, we swim in it daily. We can't help that. We live in the world. Jesus even prayed for us, and he didn't say, take them out of the world, right? He said, they're in the world. The world is thought of here as an entity hostile to God. It's seen as a seductive influence, an influence that we as believers must continually resist. The world competes for our love. It influences our thoughts and attitudes. We can't love both the world and the Lord. James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. That's pretty strong. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Now, let me be clear here. We're also not talking about individuals here. The Bible also says that God loved the world. We too, in this sense, are to love the world. But in these scriptures, the world means the system, the worldview that's in competition with God. Some people think that worldliness is limited to our behavior. While it's true that worldliness is often illustrated by our behavior, that is, the people we associate with, the places we go, the activities we enjoy, the things we do and say, worldliness begins as an attitude of the heart before it shows up in our behavior and our speech. Let me read all of James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So we see there we have a choice too, right? Friendship with the world equals sharing the world's value equals being God's enemy. James rebukes those reading his epistle for spiritual unfaithfulness. He compares it to adultery. Just as saying the things we do mess up our lives can be stupid. So to have a warm and familiar attitude toward this evil world is to be on good terms with God's enemy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. <clears throat> Before I move on to the next point, I'm going to take a risk here and I'm going to step on some toes probably. What you choose to watch, to read, to listen to matters. It's never just a movie. Movies, TV shows, music, books, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, it all matters. Now, the last thing I'm going to do this morning 
is come up with a list of do's and don'ts and say, well, this is okay and this isn't, right? When it comes to our media consumption. I'm not going to do that. You have to hear from the Lord yourselves, okay? I'm not going to come up with a list of do's and don'ts for you. But I will give you an example in my own life, okay? I've had to make some choices so that the regular use of the F word is not part of my daily media diet, lest it become a regular part of my vocabulary. When I got saved 50 years ago, I have to admit, as a teenager, 16 years old, I was a potty mouth. I could swear like a sailor. And I did around my friends who thought it was kind of cool because they did too. One of the first things the Lord cleaned up, even before I knew it was an issue, was my language. But regular immersion in our foul-mouthed world has led to such language sometimes creeping back into my thoughts, if not actually coming out of my mouth. This means, for me, I have to make some choices. So I'm asking you to figure out what choices you need to make. For me, I cannot watch otherwise compelling, popular, or interesting programs or movies sometimes. There's a show I'd really like to watch because the premise looks really interesting. The production's great, etc. But because of the per pervasive use of that language invading my spirit, I choose, no, I'm not going to watch it. I don't want to love the world. Now, of course, foul language is just one example of what we could pick on here this morning. And it's certainly not the worst thing that can influence me negatively. We can be influenced greatly by the normalization of sin that we see in media, regularly seen in the media that we consume. Now, this takes some self-awareness and some honesty with yourself, okay? Whether you're an old guy like me or you're a young person with unrestricted access to the worst of our world on your smartphones, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't think you're immune. Don't think this can't happen to you. Don't underestimate the world's ability to run your mind right into the gutter and to draw you away. When you're in the gutter, you're drawn away from the things of God and undermine your personal holiness. The fourth stupid thing is desire of riches or love of money. We read in Hebrews 13:5, let your character be free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, the word encourages us to be faithful for what we have rather than resent what we're missing. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, <clears throat> people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. <clears throat> I want to tell you about a movie that Barb and I rented several years ago. It's called A Simple Plan. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Okay. This movie could have been a sermon in a story. And the text for that sermon would be the passage that I just read from 1 Timothy. Now, because of some of the language in the movie, ironically, considering what I just said, it's hard for me to recommend it without reservation. 
But the story clearly shows how wanting to get rich leads to foolish and harmful desires. It did, in fact, in the story, it did plunge the characters in this movie into ruin and destruction, and that's not how they started out. It led to lies, it led to deceit, and eventually it led to murder. In this movie, the love of money was the beginning of all kinds of evil. We don't talk about money much at TCF, at least that's partly by design. We don't mention finances much because we want to rely completely on the Lord. My goodness, we don't even take a moment in the service anymore to receive the offering. The boxes are over here. We trust you to hear from the Lord and to give, right? We don't want to leave any possibility for anyone to feel manipulated. But sometimes I do think we do you a disservice by not looking more often at the many passages of Scripture that talk about money and material things the dangers, the potential traps, the warnings, and how we are to treat it. I've heard it said that you can learn more about a person by looking at his checkbook than by almost any other means. The idea is that what people spend their money on reveals where their heart is. And of course that's biblical. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. If our treasure is in giving, if our treasure is in giving to the church, giving to missions, giving special offerings, if we give of our resources, it's one of those leading indicators of our spiritual condition. Unfortunately, at least nationally, statistically, Christians don't tithe. Of course, tithe means 10%. And through the years at TCF, I've learned that 10% is just a starting point when it comes to giving. But statistically, Christians give less than 2% of their income. What does this have to do with love of money? Well, one strategy, and there are other strategies, but one strategy in overcoming love of money, an important way to overcome the desire for riches is to give it away. Give it away. Greed leads to all kinds of evil. To master greed, you must control it at its root, to root out and get rid of the desires to be rich. And we do that in part by being generous, by giving it away. I want to mention... Briefly, the fifth stupid thing Christians do to mess up their lives, and that's fail to seek the Lord. God is my source. I seek him for wisdom. I seek him for sustenance. I seek him for direction. But seeking the Lord goes beyond just specific circumstances. It's a hard attitude. It's a way of life. Seek means to follow. It means to pursue. Seeking the Lord is supposed to be a lifestyle an attitude, not just an event for something. The consequences of not making a lifestyle of seeking the Lord can be disastrous. We see a scriptural example with Rehoboam. Remember Rehoboam? He was the king of Israel after Solomon. And throughout the early part of his reign, Rehoboam fluctuated between obeying God and going his own way. Rehoboam had many opportunities for real greatness, and instead he ended up with a divided and broken kingdom. And here's the warning for us from the life and story of Rehoboam. Speaking of this king, the word says something about Rehoboam that I pray can never be said about any of us. Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. He did evil. Why? Because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. God wants a firm, consistent commitment 
not the waffling of Rehoboam. Psalm 34.10 says those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So we're warned about the cost of not living our lives with wholehearted devotion, but there are also promised good things when we live a lifestyle, when we cultivate the attitude of seeking the Lord. Finally, the sixth stupid thing that Christians do is trust in chariots and horses. Now, this is a metaphor, right? Any, anybody here have a chariot? Some of you may have horses. I know some who have horses. But they don't place their trust in them, right? And of course, this is a metaphor for strength and power, right? But even though I don't know anybody who has a chariot, I do know people who seem to put their trust in Donald Trump. I do know some people who put their trust in Joe Biden or some other politician or political party or any perceived power. I do know some who put their trust unequivocally in other things like science or their jobs or an individual. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This isn't an admonition to never trust anyone or anything. Rather, it's a call to trust the Lord above all else. Trusting him first for our salvation, but then trusting him for every other element of our lives. Trusting his wisdom and his provision and his protection, whatever comes our way. Let's be wise believers. Wise in the purely biblical sense, not like a wise guy. Not foolish, not stupid. Let's seek the Lord. Let's be rich toward God and not things. Let's not underestimate the world. Let's not forsake the fellowship. And let's not neglect the word of God. Or trust in anything or anyone but the Lord who redeemed us. And set us on a path that should lead to righteousness. And if we don't do the stupid things that Christians do to mess up their lives, it will lead to righteousness. Let's not do these stupid things to mess up our lives. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word because, Father, you don't leave us guessing what we're to do and what we're not to do. You don't leave us just flapping around in the breeze trying to figure out what's the best thing to do and what are the things we shouldn't do, what are the things we should avoid. But you tell us with great clarity in your word. So, Father, we do pray about these stupid things that Christians do to mess up their lives. And you, we pray that you'd protect us from these things. You'd give us a heart attitude that wants to seek you, that wants to trust in you, that wants to look to your word, Father, and never neglect your word, that doesn't want to trust in anything but you. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these admonitions. We ask you to use them in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.